Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for metamodern mutants interested in meditation, hardcore dharma, emptiness, inconceivability, neuroscience stuff, the love poem to existence that is Rick and Morty, awakening, universal compassion, and much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking once again with addiction psychiatrist and internationally known expert in mindfulness training for treating addiction, Judd Brewer. Judson Brewer is an MD, PhD, and a thought leader in the field of habit change and the science of self-mastery. Having combined nearly 20 years of experience with mindfulness training with his scientific research. Judd is the Director of Research and Innovation at the Mindfulness Center and Associate Professor in Psychiatry at the School of Medicine at Brown University, as well as a research affiliate at MIT. And he has developed and tested novel mindfulness programs for habit change, including both in-person and app-based treatments for smoking, emotional eating, and anxiety. I thought of speaking with Judd once again because of his name coming up in the most recent interview with Dan Brown. Dan, if you'll recall, worked with Judd on a research project into the neuroscience of some of these more advanced Vajrayana and Dzogchen techniques that Dan is involved with. So I decided it might be an interesting time to revisit some of that material with Judd. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Effortlessness in Meditation with Judd Brewer. Judd, welcome back to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you were one of the first guests that I had all those many years ago, decades and decades ago, <laughs> Yeah, back when we did a face-to-face interview at 1440. That was fun. Certainly something we can't do in these heady days of the plague. So where are you at right now? I'm physically in Worcester, Massachusetts. Ah. Worcester, yes. And here I am in downtown San Francisco. So it'd be nice to be in person, but we're doing the best we can. So welcome virtually (laughs) back again. Thank you. So, you know, I just did an interview with Dan Brown recently, which was really a lot of fun. What an interesting guy to talk with. Mm. And he mentioned some research that you had done together, and I managed to get my hands on a PDF of that and check it out in the meantime. Wow, what a fascinating experiment. Yeah, it was fabulous. Anything you want to share about that work? I mean, I think it was really nice to see how this really confirmed and brought further along some of the early work that we had done with experienced meditators in different traditions, you know, finding that the default mode network, for example, this self-referential brain network that gets activated when we get all caught up in experience and gets deactivated with meditation, that we could see similar findings. You know, we'd done fMRI work originally and then could now see this with EEG. The other thing that was really fun to do with Dan was to look at these four different steps moving into Rigpa, and we could measure those explicitly with guidance, basically, or prompts, have them, you know, walk from one state to the next to the next while we could get some really nice EEG recording. And so that was really, 
pretty novel and it really was bringing forward what our hypotheses were. Fascinating. So you got some really nice high resolution steps from sort of beginning all the way into Rigpa, right? Mm -hmm. Like these kind of four stages. Really cool. Now, I remember in our last interview, which was, I think, about two and a half years ago, you spoke a lot about effortlessness, which I think was part of that experiment mm -hmm. and other experiments you've done. So have you continued to work in the realm of effortlessness research in the meantime? Yeah, we've done a number of experiments and have some ongoing looking at linking some of the neurobiologic mechanisms that we had identified, linking those to clinical outcomes, smoking, for example, and then also looking more broadly at the universality of experience with emotional states to see what that closed versus open feels like, how that lines up with reward value in the brain, and how that can even help prompt behavior change, which actually links all the way back to the early teachings of the Buddha. So happy to jump in anywhere you'd like. <laughs> that was a whole big mouthful you just said. So <laughs> let's like back up a little bit. There was a leap you made there that I want to focus in on where I was talking about effortlessness mm -hmm. and you tied it to open and closed or yeah. feeling open and closed. So can you unpack that for me just a little bit? What do you mean? I'd be happy to. And I'll link this to the brain mechanisms if that's helpful for folks. There's been a hypothesis going around developed by uh, Chin and Northoff. I think they wrote a paper way back in 2011, hypothesizing you know this default mode network as being you know this hub of the sense of self. And there were two main hubs, the medial prefrontal cortex and the posterior cingulate cortex. And we had done some neurophenomenologic experiments showing or suggesting that the posterior cingulate is a marker not of a conceptual self, but of an experiential self. And I think this was in line with Chin and Northoff's hypotheses. And the idea is when, so the posterior cingulate gets activated across a bunch of different states. It gets activated when we think about the past or the future, it gets activated when we get caught up in ruminating during depression. It gets activated when we perseverate about the future with anxiety. It gets activated when we get caught up in craving. And what we had hypothesized a couple of years after the Chin and Northoff paper came out was that the posterior cingulate was this marker of this experiential sense of self. Whereas that contracted feeling that happens when we worry about the future, when we regret the past, or when we get caught up in a craving, that's actually a marker of here I am. And beyond that contraction is the rest of the world. So it, it literally gives us a felt sense of self. I'll pause there. Does that make sense? It does, but I want to look at that a little more closely. So if the default mode network overall is like a hub of self, and we've got these two main nodes and probably a bunch of minor nodes, right? But we've got the medial prefrontal cortex and the posterior cingulate cortex, correct? Mm -hmm. And those are the two big parts, the two main parts of the default mode network. If the PCC is this experiential self that gets contracted, how would you characterize the medial prefrontal cortex? What's its role in the default mode network or in the sense of self? Yeah, I'm going to base this on what I've read and what other people have done. We haven't studied it experimentally ourselves. So the best way for us to do this would be to do some real-time neurofeedback and neurophenomenologic experiments to confirm this. But the hypothesis, I would say the working hypothesis, 
is that the medial prefrontal cortex is activated during the conceptual sense of self. So when I think, oh, I am Judd, for example. So that concept, I am Judd, seems to be more you know, linked to the medial prefrontal cortex, whereas that felt sense of self when somebody insults me, for example, and says, well, Judd, you're an idiot, you know, and I feel that, <laughs> yeah, you know, I could conceptually be like, Judd is an idiot. And that wouldn't necessarily have a felt sense to it. So my sense is that the medial prefrontal cortex is more this conceptual sense that paired with that felt sense of gives us a whole self, too much of a self. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I get it. And so when the PCC, the experiential self hub is really upregulated or activated, we're going to get that feeling of closed down, tight constricted self, correct? Yes. Yeah. And so that's what I'm referring to in terms of feeling closed or contracted. And then I assume that when the PCC is less activated, we feel more open, more relaxed. Yes. That's what we found in neurophenomenologic experiments earlier on. And I think these studies with Dan Brown's students also confirm that. And so are you making a direct link between effort and this experiential self? Yes. And in fact, some of our neurophenomenologic experiments showed direct evidence for that. So for example, I remember one of the subjects in the scanner, because we can watch their brain activity in real time. And so there was this point where this person's brain activity, the posterior cingulate activity spiked. And then immediately afterwards, we could ask them what happened you know, during that spike. And he said, you know, I felt like I wasn't paying attention to the graph. He was kind of using it as an object of meditation. So I tried to look at it harder. <laughs> but the thing about awareness is you can't try to be aware more. You're either aware or you're not. So yes. there's a great example of trying to look or trying to be more aware. You know, there's effort, but that effort is on top of something that's already there, which is awareness. Fascinating. Now, obviously, we need to do stuff, and doing anything does take effort in the sense of, you know, just ergs and physical activity. So is it your understanding, or the way you're looking at this, that the sense of being the one making the effort is like an add-on, like that's extra Yes. This analogy comes to mind where if we are physically lifting weights, for example, and working out in that way, we could grunt. <laughs> I don't know why people, you know, it's like, <laughs> and we could grunt with an attitude of, oh, this sucks. I have to do another rep. Or we could grunt almost with glee, like, whoa, yeah. <laughs> and that, if it's not in like an excited, like, oh, check me out grunt, which we'll have to see how many of those there actually are. <laughs> but when, yeah, how, when how many grunts are possible? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the different taxonomy of grunts. <laughs> <laughs> there could be an effortless grunt in the sense that there is physical effort, but there is no mental effort. And in fact, there could actually be joy that's happening when somebody is physically grunting from lifting a weight. So that's the difference that I'm talking about. And I think that's what you're talking about too, is like we can be physically doing something that is effortful, but it doesn't have to be mentally taxing in the process. 
Well, yeah, I think what I'm pointing to is even slightly more specific than that, which is like it doesn't have to be that there's an idea that this is hard for me or a pain or like I'm really the one doing this, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? It just has this kind of, okay, the body's doing it kind of attitude. So are we talking about the same thing here? We are. And in fact, stop me if we've talked about this before, but in one of our studies, we had somebody spontaneously get into flow and she reported this. We'd never mentioned the word flow in the study, but we watched her PCC activity bottom out. Actually, I gave a TEDx talk on this a couple of years ago, so folks can actually see this you know, happening. But basically, I think of flow as the extreme end of that, where you know, Csikszentmihalyi defines flow as selfless, effortless, you know, timeless, all this lack of self, basically. And in the same vein, when we lose a sense of self, that contraction moves so far out that we lose a sense of where that boundary ends and where the rest of the world begins. And so in that way, we could be doing things in a completely selfless manner where there is simply awareness of stuff happening and it doesn't matter how physically taxing it is, it's just happening. And we see this in the Olympics, for example, when people are just crushing it, you know, you can just tell because <laughs> yeah. uh, one of my favorite examples is Usain Bolt, you know, when he was out there just blowing away the competition, winning the hundred meter sprint or the 110 or whatever it is he would have this shit-eating grin on his face, (laughs) you know, because he's out there having fun. Yeah, and so that would be a different mood than if there was this big grin of, like, pride and self-satisfaction, correct? Yes, and I can't speak for Usain as to what what that grin was, but I would like to think (laughs) that it's this just joy of running so fast. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we did talk about effortlessness to some degree last time, and uh, it's very fascinating. What have you learned about effortlessness since then, and what do you hope to study about it further? One thing that we've been exploring is how this lines up with behavior change. You know, as a psychiatrist, I want to develop tools that aren't just intellectually interesting, but I want my research to be relevant to help people. And we've done, you know, some recent studies that link up behavior change with some of this effortlessness. And so I'll bridge into this with one of these smoking studies that we did recently and then talk a little bit about some of the eating work that we've done more recently, if that works for you. Yeah. And just to be clear, when you say smoking work and eating work, you mean smoking cessation and overeating reduction or something like that? (laughs) Yes. We aren't out there trying to get people to smoke. (laughs) Just to be clear. (laughs) Make it sure. (laughs) Good. Thank you. So one thing that I mentioned earlier is that the posterior cingulate gets activated during smoking cravings. And One of my colleagues and collaborators, Amy Janes, who's at Harvard, developed a paradigm with smoking cues where she could put people in the fMRI scanner, show them cues of people smoking cigarettes, and compared to neutral cues, show that their posterior cingulate lights up like a Christmas tree. So we thought this paradigm would be a really good marker to start to link up the neurobiologic mechanisms with behavior change to see, you know, specifically if mindfulness training I think of it as a quintessential way to train people to pay attention to their direct experience. If paying attention could actually line up 
with changes in brain activity, and that would predict smoking reductions. So we had done previous work where we did clinical studies with mindfulness training. We found that we could get five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment with mindfulness training. So we knew that it worked, but we didn't know what the neurobiologic mechanisms were. So one thing we could do as we move into you know, this modern era of medicine where things are moving to mobile delivery and telehealth and things like that, we developed this app called Craving to Quit where we could actually give people mindfulness training at home, basically. And so what we did was using Amy's paradigm, we brought people in that wanted to quit smoking and we scanned their brains at baseline showing them these smoking cues to see how activated their posterior cingulate got. Then we could randomize them to get this app-based mindfulness training or the National Cancer Institute's app. A month later, we could bring them back in, scan their brains again, and to see what correlated with outcomes. And something really interesting happened. One thing that we noticed was that the more people reduced brain activity in the mindfulness training group, but not in the control group, so the more they reduced activity, there was a direct correlation with reduction in brain activity and a reduction in cigarettes. Correlation was like 0.4 or something like that. Pretty good for an app-based study. We also yeah. found that there was a dose-dependent relationship. The more modules they completed, the better they did. That correlation was even stronger. The control group, they did the same number of modules, no correlation. And when you bring those two variables together with baseline smoking, just with those three variables, we actually could count for 58% of the variance of all the reduction in cigarettes. There was a lot of explanatory power with just those three variables, number of cigarettes people were smoking at baseline, their reduction in brain activity, and the number of modules they completed. So here, for the first time, we could actually link up a theory. You know, Mindfulness training helps people pay attention so they can see what it's like to get caught up in craving. And as they learn to work with those feelings of craving, they can start to let go of getting caught up. And we see a concomitant reduction in brain activity, and that actually predicts clinical outcomes. So that, to me, is like the holy trinity of research is you, <laughs> you line up theory with brain mechanism with clinical outcomes. And again, the control group, unfortunately for them, you know, really no correlation between these things. That's really cool. And I'm just curious, what did you have them focusing on or paying attention to? Was it the feeling of smoking a cigarette or what was the actual focus object? So we had them go through, I think it was 21 modules, these short, you know, five to 10 minute trainings that basically give them mindfulness training. And one of the main exercises that they do as part of the app is to pay attention as they smoke. So let's get into some theory here. The reason for that is I'll start with the modern day theory and then I'll line this up to some ancient theory, which is that the way that behaviors get established is through how rewarding they are. Okay. And so I'll give an example. Let's use eating food example. So like cake, when we go to a birthday party, when we're five, you know, we eat some cake and then we also associate that with ice cream and friends and presents and parties and all this. And so our brain establishes a certain reward value for cake. And every time we go to a party, it gets reinforced over and over and over and over and over. Same thing happens with smoking. The typical patient that comes in for one of my studies and even for my clinic starts smoking at the age of 13. And so the reward there might be rebellion or you know, being cool at school or whatever, because cigarettes actually, they're uh, delivering toxin to your stomach. So that's why people feel nauseated the first couple of times they smoke. So that reward value gets established and then it gets laid down as a habit. I think of it as set and forget. You set the reward value and forget about the details. 
Does that make sense? Right. It does. I have some questions. Yeah. Yeah. So is this saying that addiction is mainly a kind of learning? Yes. Yeah. It's basically a hijacking of our most basic survival mechanisms. Right. And so it's not that addicts are weak or have some kind of disease or something. It's just a kind of intense learning that has occurred where the brain gets these big signals of reward. Yeah. I'm glad you bring that up. Yes. So if being human is a disease, then we're all sick. (laughs) But other than that, people with addictions, they just happen to get caught up in the far end of that spectrum of learning. You know, I love the definition of addiction is continued use despite adverse consequences. And so really what this is, is habit formation, which is a survival mechanism that's kind of gone off to the far end of the spectrum where that behavior has become so rewarding that it now leads to adverse consequences. This has nothing to do with people being weak. In fact, we can footnote this. I will argue, and I think I have some good cognitive neuroscience to back this up, that there is actually no such thing as willpower. It's a heuristic that was developed sometime historically that is a feel-good, makes sense, but actually not backed up by (laughs) cognitive neuroscience. And so if somebody says somebody else is weak because they have an addiction, I would say, do you know how your brain works? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So we can talk more about that later if you want, but I don't want to detract from the main focus here. Yeah, but really, really interesting. And then my other question is, what is delivering the reward? Is it a dopamine hit? Is it some kind of opiate? Like, what are we talking about here? What is this actual reward mechanism? Because my understanding was, anyway, or let's say my potential misunderstanding, (laughs) is that the whole idea of a reward circuit or whatever turned out to not be the case, and it was more about anticipation. Both are true, and I think some of this is just terms. So let's define our terms. The way that I'll use the word reward is in the sense of reinforcement learning. So you need three elements to form a habit. You need a trigger, a behavior, and I'm going to say a reward, but that's a neuroscience term. It's not necessarily rewarding. This was set up to help us survive. You know, you see food, you eat the food, and then your stomach sends this dopamine signal to your brain, and this is really important, that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. Okay? Yeah, good job. Do that again. Yeah. And it's not like, hey, this is great. It's actually this jolt. You know, there's this restless, excited quality to it, you know? That's what I'm going to call rewarding because it's rewarding to our brain in the sense that it reinforces reward-based learning. It's not necessarily feeling rewarding. Like when somebody takes opioids or whatever, the feelings of pleasure, the hedonic tone generally probably comes from opioid receptor activation or other neurotransmitters. Maybe dopamine is involved a little bit, but dopamine is more associated with feelings of restlessness feelings of urges and things like that. And so this is where it gets to anticipation. So imagine being out on the savanna, having to forage for food. You don't know where food is. Your job is to find food sources and remember where they are. So you're out on the savanna and suddenly you find a food source and your brain says, boom, remember what you ate and where you found it. And what happens is if you go back to that source a couple of times, that dopamine firing switches So it first fires when you do the behavior, but then it switches to anticipating doing the behavior. And what that does is it gets us off the couch or the cave floor or whatever to go get food. It's a motivating factor. 
So this is where anybody that's had a craving for anything, and I think most humans have cravings, you know, when you think about the chocolate ice cream in the freezer or whatever, that, oh, I need to go get some, that's dopamine firing saying, go get it. Okay. So that's where the anticipation comes in. That's why I'm saying both are true. Yes. It depends on the time frame that you're looking at. Is it right when somebody's learning or is it after somebody's learned and is now moving to the anticipation and the motivation to go do the behavior? All right. So we're talking about people having this dopamine jolt that is rewarding and that completes this loop that makes this reinforcement learning happen. Yes. And so we learn how rewarding something is, and then we forget about the details, and that gets set up as a habit. I'll give an example of one of my clinic patients who came in, had been smoking for 40 years. He wanted to quit smoking. He had reinforced this habit loop 293,000 times. Okay, just let that sink in. (laughs) 300,000 times that this guy had reinforced this habit. And so, of course, he tried everything from willpower, which doesn't exist, to, you know, medications and whatnot, and couldn't quit smoking. So what the mindfulness training does is help people pay attention as they smoke. And this is really important because as they pay attention, they see how rewarding that behavior is right now. Not when they were 13, not when they were ignoring and not paying attention to what the cigarettes taste like, but right now. And (laughs) I don't have a single patient that's ever come in and said, you know, thank you, doc. I never realized how great cigarettes taste. Oh, you've just upped it. Now I smoke two packs a day because these are so (laughs) yummy. Cigarettes taste like shit. That's why they have to put menthol in them and do all this other stuff so that you can't taste them because it's pretty nasty. This is also why vaping is so dangerous because the vaping companies are pretty smart and they figured out, oh, that's a barrier to keep people smoking is all this nastiness. Let's get rid of the nastiness. Oh, bubblegum, mango, mint, done. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, yeah. So that's what we do is we have people pay attention. Now, this is one of my favorite things ever, which is, you know, the Buddha actually predicted this before paper was invented. So if I had to distill all of the <laughs> teachings and the suttas that I've read down to a single sentence, you know, if I had to throw everything away except one, I'm going to paraphrase. There's this line that I think is in more than one place where he talks about exploring gratification to its end. You know, he said something like, it wasn't until I explored gratification to its end that knowledge and vision arose. And then he talks about getting enlightened. And the idea here is he noticed how rewarding or unrewarding these behaviors were that he was previously doing, you know? So if you believe the historical, you know, the story of the Buddha, you know, going to excess, you know, having all the women, all the money, all the food, and then, you know, that didn't do it for him. And then going to the austerity and that didn't do it for him. You know, he started to realize, oh, you know, none of this actually brings me lasting happiness. And so he became disenchanted with these old behaviors. And that's exactly what we see in our smoking studies, where people become disenchanted with the cigarettes. And that disenchantment may show up as a decrease in brain activity when people are noticing cigarettes, you know, pictures of cigarettes, because they see that and their brain's like, meh, 
I used to think that was good, but you know, that those are actually not that great. And so they're not that caught up in the craving for it because they're just not that excited to smoke anymore, which actually comes full circle to effortlessness and awareness. So simply paying attention as they smoke helps them change that behavior in an effortless way. They don't have to force themselves. They simply pay attention. And in fact, we built this craving tool right into this app where we could have people pay attention as they smoke and then rate how rewarding it was afterwards. And this is really important because we can then mathematically model changes in reward value. And we can find there's this modeling, there are these two researchers, Rescorla and Wagner, that came up with this model back in the 70s. And they found, you know, the level of reward correlates with everything from dopamine firing to brain activity and reward centers to all this stuff from mice to primates to humans. And we could show, you know, in real life, as people are going through this mindfulness training, that that reward value drops. And are you ready for this? It drops significantly within 10 to 15 times of people paying attention as they smoke. So these wow. could be people who've been smoking for you know 20 years, and within 10 to 15 times of people paying attention, that reward value gets updated. And there's this whole, we can go into the geekery about it, you know, this is called a negative predictionary. So their brain is predicting that the reward is going to be X, and when they pay attention, they realize that it's not X, it's not as great as they thought. That's called a negative predictionary. It's less than predicted, and then that gets updated relatively quickly. They don't have to go 40 years and keep paying attention. This can happen relatively quickly. So there's a kind of a disappointment. Your brain thought you were going to get this big reward, and then that doesn't happen. I would call it the, oh, man, <laughs> phenomenon, yeah. where our brain's yeah. like, oh, man, I used to think cigarettes were good. These actually aren't that great. <laughs> and that's also the case for other behaviors. It's not only in smoking. So we've actually embedded the same type of craving tool in an eating app. Ashley Mason, who's a professor at UCSF, led a study showing that this mindful eating app called Eat Right Now could actually reduce craving-related eating by 40%. And so that's a pretty nice number, what's actually going on mechanistically. And so we embedded this craving tool into that eating program and did the same type of study where we could have people pay attention as they overate or as they ate junk food and then have them you know, check in with themselves how rewarding was that. And within 10 to 12 times... So similar order of magnitude within 10 to 12 times, that reward value not only drops to zero, it drops below zero, where it is actually more rewarding not to eat or not to overeat than it is to do the previously learned behavior. And that drop in reward value actually predicts eating behavior. That's amazing. Now, none of us want to, you know, keep smoking and or overeat. And so looking at that very closely and becoming disenchanted, you know, that's great. But would something similar happen with even positive behaviors that we examined in this way? Depends on what you mean by positive behavior. Yeah. So let's say some kind of like really excellent pro-social behavior, mm -hmm. you know, that we want to reward in ourselves and other people. What do you think would happen if we got experimental on that and started doing mindfulness about how rewarding that actually was. 
I love this. You can come and join my lab because <laughs> those are the types of experiments we're setting up to do. So we have literally just completed data collection. We haven't even fully analyzed these data yet, but we've just completed data collection with a very simple hypothesis, which is two hypotheses. One, is there a universal experience of open and closed? Like, will people report certain mental states as feeling more open or closed without us even defining what open or closed is. So we took a bunch of mental states, things like anxiety, anger, calm, joy, curiosity, craving, things like that. And we had people first remember a situation recently when they felt that, whatever it was, let's say when they felt anxiety. And then we had them, we did this online. So we had them kind of color in where in the body they felt that feeling. And that was actually there to help get people really embodied in this, not to be thinking about this intellectually. And then we asked them, okay, if you had to pick, does it feel more open or closed, right? No definitions at all, just if you had to pick. And then they pick one or the other. And then we say, okay, how open or closed does it feel? Are you with me? I'm with you. Okay. So actually, let's do this, and anybody listening can do this. So just think of a time recently when you were anxious. And then if you can bring up that feeling of anxiety, feel where you feel it most in your body. And if you had to pick, does it feel open or closed? So I feel it in my diaphragm, and it's definitely closed. Okay. This isn't the perfect experiment, because I think you know what I mean by open and closed. <laughs> but that's universally what people report, is that anxiety feels closed. It feels closed down. And there have been several studies showing that people feel anxiety tends to be in their chest or in that solar plexus area. So you're right in line with what those people report. So that closed feeling, then you can rate how closed does anxiety feel. And then we can do this with a bunch of other mental states, you know. Now, let's contrast that to joy. You know, if you had to pick, does joy feel closed or open? Absolutely open. Okay. So now what we can do is we can establish the universality of this. And what we find uh, pretty consistently, this study was with about 700 participants. I think we narrowed it down to 450 who had met all the criteria. So, you know, large study, almost 500 people. We see a pretty consistent spread where people pretty consistently rate things like anxiety as closed and joy as open. Okay. Now let's take this to the next level, which is if you had to pick closed versus open, which feels better? Open. Yeah. And that's actually what we had people do. We had them rank. We had them take all these mental states and rank which ones they would prefer as a very simple measure of preference and surrogate for reward value. You know, what is more rewarding? And joy actually was at the top of the list. Calm was up there. Connectedness, you know, also felt open, curiosity, things like that. So here we can see experientially people report mental states, just as an example, they can feel into their experience. They can report them as closed or open. And the open states pretty consistently feel more rewarding. So what does this have to do with mindfulness training? Well, we can actually look at our own experience. We can tap into our own inner wisdom because our body mind actually knows what feels better. So, you know, classic teachings, anger or aversion, 
extreme end hatred, as some are translated, versus uh, kindness. So which one feels closed and which one feels open and which one feels better? I think most people would report that kindness feels a lot more open and a lot better. Yeah. So we don't actually have to do a lot of reward in the classic sense, like give somebody a treat for being nice. (laughs) (laughs) We can simply have people pay attention And the treat is that their brain will do all the work for them. This is fascinating. So presumably, if we took a kindness behavior and looked at what it felt like when we were doing it or after we were doing it, it would not have the effect of disenchantment, where our predicted reward was far lower than what was actually there. Yeah, it would be a positive prediction error if people didn't expect it to be that rewarding. And they'd be like, oh, wow, that's pretty yummy. I would like some more of that. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So this is really fascinating. If we take the phrase that you were describing of the Buddha's exploring gratification to its end, then we end up with something like what the historical Buddha was talking about where, hey, if you work on things like joy and compassion and feeling great about other people doing good and so on, that's a very different kind of mind state than, you know, sitting around smoking cigarettes or, you know, thinking about getting revenge on your enemies. Right. Or even scrolling on our newsfeed because we're bored, you know, which just perpetuates that. Yeah, that one in particular, I don't know why it's so addictive, but it certainly is. And because it's, it's designed after slot machines, <laughs> <laughs> right? Its intended design is to be addictive. You're right. And it's never, ever as rewarding as you think it's going to be. <laughs> and it just, you know, makes us itch for more. You probably know the hungry ghosts idea. You know, there's this image of this ghost that has a big mouth, a a long, narrow esophagus and a huge belly. And so no matter how much it eats, it can't fill its belly. And that's what the endless scroll in the newsfeed is. It's the, you know, always wanting more and more and more and using surprise and things like that to jack our dopamine systems to get us caught in that samsaric loop. The nice thing is, this is another one of the geniuses of dependent origination, you know, some of the early teachings of the Buddha, was that, you know, the Buddha said, just look at cause and effect. If you pay attention to cause and effect, that is all you need to know. And if you look at it from a modern cognitive neuroscience perspective, it's not behavior that changes future behavior. It's how rewarding that behavior is. And that's cause and effect. If you pay attention to how rewarding or unrewarding a behavior is, behavior, cause, reward, effect, you help your brain see, oh, this is not that rewarding. And the rest takes care of itself. It unwinds itself. And so you're using effortless in a really interesting way. And correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but you're using it to mean, for example, if I want to quit smoking, I don't need to make some kind of direct effort to quit smoking. Rather, I make the effort to pay attention to smoking, what it feels like physically when I smoke, what it tastes like when I smoke. So there's a little effort there. But the actual addiction extinction 
itself just kind of happens naturally or effortlessly from that. Yes. You know, I would liberally interpret the Buddhist teachings to say that's exploring gratification to its end. Yes. The other piece here, I would say you talk about, and I don't want to put words into your mouth, but you've mentioned the effort to pay attention. Here, I would say the Buddha had something to say about that as well, which is, you know, if you look at, for example, the seven factors of awakening in the Anapanasati Sutta, they were taught in a particular order, which started with mindfulness and then uh, Dhamma Vichaya, which is basically investigation or liberally translated as curiosity. And what I would suggest is that if we actually just get curious, if we're interested in seeing where we're suffering and how we're causing our own suffering, it might not even take effort to pay attention because we're naturally inclined. We want to pay attention because we want to see how to end that suffering. And so here, I would suggest that as we foster curiosity, that awareness naturally ramps up because we're going to want to pay attention. We don't even have to use effort in that way. I don't want to suggest that that's what you are suggesting, but I just want to point that out to folks. This isn't about forcing ourselves to pay attention. You know, we could. <laughs> yeah, we can just be naturally curious about something that's interesting. Yes. So another way that this is really interesting and related to meditation is that my lab has this fancy, expensive equipment where we can, you know, give people feedback from their brains in real time. I would suggest that that's not actually necessary. What I would suggest that is necessary is the calibration of our own experience, where we really pay attention to what it feels like to feel closed or contracted, and we really pay attention to what it feels like to be open or expanded. And we can use those two parameters to be constantly exploring our experience moment to moment to see cause and effect. You know, okay, when somebody yelled at me, do I feel closed? When I yelled at somebody, do I feel closed? When somebody held the door for me, do I feel open? When I held the door for somebody and wasn't expecting anything in return, did I feel open? And in that way, we can start to link up this cause and effect with everything we do every moment. You know, we can practice like our hair's on fire each moment of the day simply keeping that binary in mind and looking for cause and effect. Oh, I just did something. Did that lead to openness or did that lead to feeling more closed down? And the nice thing about this is it doesn't matter if it felt more closed down. It's not like we're trying to be open all the time. What we're trying to do is learn. And so we can learn, oh, when I mean it feels closed and that doesn't feel very rewarding. Oh, when I'm kind it feels good and open, and that's rewarding. And the more we can see and link up those cause and effect relationships, the more everything will take care of itself. It's just a matter of doing this over and over and over and over every moment. Wow. And I want to mention a new experiment that we're going to be doing really shortly, where we're going to actually be uh, looking at experienced meditators' brains with both fMRI and EEG simultaneously, which is something that we haven't been able to do previously, and only the equipment and the know-how was available when my lab moved to Brown. So if anybody is interested who's got, you know, say more than 10 years of meditation experience and would be willing to come to Providence, Rhode Island and have their brain scanned while they're meditating, they can certainly contact me and we'll go from there. 
That's really cool. So if someone were interested in taking part in this experiment as a subject, how would they get in touch with you? They can contact my research associate, Alex Roy. It's Alexandra underscore Roy, R-O-Y, at brown.edu. And they can put in the subject line, experience meditator study, or something like I heard about your study on the podcast. Chad, this has been super fascinating. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice, and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct You. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash signup or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. 
I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R.com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>